So um, if we were, you know, going back through here, just some highlights, uh, you know, 17 spiritual Babylon falls, 18 uh, political economic Babylon falls, uh, 19 uh, uh, heaven is exalts over Babylon, uh, Christ on the white horse at verse 11, continuing the beast and his armies are defeated. Uh, and then you come to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, where uh, the New King G James Version has conveniently included the header of Satan bound for 1,000 years. So uh, we'll get to why, right? Because you read that and think like, why not just permanently? Why temporary? You know, a thousand years is a good long time, but why not just finish up the program? So then I saw an angel, verse one, coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and sat, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Um, I mentioned to the uh, church this morning, and I'll tell you now that I appreciate your prayers. Um, the Hancock County Jail Bible study has resumed. So uh, we've been, uh, you know, we're still not there in person. We're, we're doing it via Zoom. Uh, but, um, you know, they tell me it probably isn't going to be a long time before we're able to resume the in-person studies. So three weeks now, uh, two uh, gentlemen, then four, and then back down to two. The populace rotates all the time. You know, people are in for short stints and longer stints and waiting sentencing and trials. So you never know who you're going to get. But one of the inmates asked the question, you know, I, I want to serve God. I, I wish he would just change me. Why, why can't it just be that, you know, he takes these things away? And, uh, you know, very fitting to why can't the Lord just take the devil away? And be done with this. Going to reign for a thousand years, but only um, because that's what love is, is choice. If you have no choice, then it's not really love. You know, if you're stranded on a desert island with the most amazing person in the world, and they come to you and say, I've fallen in love with you, and you do your little ceremony and get married between the two of you, and you live as a happy couple, you never going to know whether that's sincere or not until the rescue boat arrives. And they have a choice other than you. Because as long as you're the only choice, you don't know how sincere that is. And this is what the Lord is doing right here. It's what he's doing in our lives. You know, people say they love the Lord. And Jesus said, those who love me, obey me. So... You know, it, it is about the choices we make. It is about the obedience that we conduct ourselves in. And here, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and during that period of time, there are going to be people bound, uh, born on earth who have never experienced what it was like before when Satan was here. They're only going to have experienced what it's like to live under the, the uninterrupted reign of Jesus Christ. So Satan will be released for a period of time in order for them to have opportunity to follow. Notice uh, here it makes this statement that uh, you know the seal will be set on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years was finished. Um, you know, I think I know the opinion of most of us. But I don't know everybody's opinion in this room about issues like creation versus evolution. Um, evolution is a lie. It, it is something that our enemy has used to deceive the world. And, and deception is the tool of the devil. Uh, just having a conversation uh, 
about satanic and demonic influence in the church today. And, uh, you know, questions coming up, uh, you know, old questions of can Christians be demon-possessed? And, and, you know, the blunt answer is no. Absolutely not. Okay, uh, that isn't just because we've all gathered together and taken a vote and said, what's your opinion on the matter? And the majority has won. It's because Jesus Christ said that when a demon is cast out of a person, King James Version says that the demon goes through the desert places and finding no rest returns to the house, meaning the person. And finding it swept and put in order, but unoccupied. That's the key point, right? Unoccupied. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in that person. You can cast a demon out of someone, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell there, that demon can go right back into that person. The demon goes in 5-7 like unto himself, comes back with them, possesses the person. The end state is worse than their beginning. If the Holy Spirit is in that house, in that person, right, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then that one has no opportunity to come back in. The authority of God's word. You know, one of the greatest deceptions that occurred, um, and I just had his name and it has escaped me. Um, He was an author in the early 80s who began to have great influence over Christianity, who um, he insisted that he had been a satanic high priest in Los Angeles. Um, And uh, he he was given speaking engagements all over the world, and he taught all kinds of things about Satanism and the influence of Satan. Turns out uh, he was a complete liar. He was never a Satanist at all, let alone a satanic high priest in charge of a 1,600-person satanic coven in Los Angeles, California. They found photographs of him. You know, He's talking about in 1961, he had three-foot-long bleached white hair and three-inch-long blood-red fingernails. And you know, some of us that were around in 1961 imagined seeing that creature walking down the street. You would have called the police in 1961. Today, you say, oh, school must have let out. You know what I'm saying? But, um, you know, then... It was unheard of. Nobody bothered to ask. He just makes up these stories, and the church welcomes him in, and he preaches from the pulpit, and he tells the church that as a satanic high priest, he had this power and this capability, and he pronounced this curse on this building, and it burned to the ground that afternoon. And All lies. All lies. And the church just sucks it up like it's real. He did more to serve Satan during that period of time in the church, right? It's interesting that his book was called Satan Summer, right? Because he sold it to the church and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. He was a liar. He was. They found pictures of him in 1961 in his uh, college photographs with horn-rimmed glasses and white water. He was not a satanic high priest. He was a geek in school. You know, he was studying, you know, economics. The the power of Satan is lies. Deceive whole nations through lies. That's that's a lot of what's going on right now in our nation. Our nation is being wildly deceived on so many fronts. He he is going to be bound for a thousand years, and his influence will not be able to touch the uh, the world notice notice again that a single angel goes to arrest lucifer there isn't a special forces team of angels deployed parachuted in you know massive firefight battle that goes on and explosions and just you wouldn't believe the melee and you know finally once Half the squad was dead. They capture the devil under great duress. One angel goes with the authority of God and says, time's up, pal, and puts him in jail. We, We give Satan so much credit where credit is not due, not due. Fear, fear, lies, manipulation, 
is is what we obey. Romans six sixteen, be not deceived. What you obey, that is your master. Right? Whether it be sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness, but uh, you know, if that's fear, paranoia, worry, concern, right? So many people are consumed with concern. They, they just let anxiety dominate and rule their life. They're, they're worried. And, and, you know, and then they describe to you what's going on in their life. And you think, well, hey, you kind of got cause for worry. That's a lot of junk, you know, as they tell you everything that's going on. But, but herein is the issue. Who's your master? Right? Because if it's Jesus Christ, then he is capable of speaking things into existence and out of existence. If that's the God you serve, then, then you know, Philippians was correct, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer, and here's the key point, and thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? I haven't received the answer to the prayer yet, because you're praying to the God who can and will answer the prayer. With prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God Right? And the peace which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we will go to him in faith and pray and ask for him to work in our circumstances. Instead, we listen to the paranoia. We listen to the fear. Right? James told us, you ask of God, he'll give generously to all you know, the wisdom that is needed. But let him who ask, believe and not doubt. If you're going to doubt... Don't expect to receive anything. Satan is a master manipulator. And uh, he's been at it for a very long time, so he's honed his craft. He began in a masterful level of conduct, and he's spent thousands of years sharpening the skills. He, he stumbles us with the you know basic tools, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The toolbox is pretty small, but boy, he uses it effectively. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to accomplish his end. He will be bound. That'll be a beautiful thing to not have to contend with that. Now in verse four, he says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There is, um, you know, you have... Um, Within the idea of the rapture, particularly, you have the the pre-tribulation rapturists, which that is our position. That is what we teach. That which is what we hold to. Mid-tribulation rapturists that that say at the three and a half year mark the Lord is coming, and then there are the post-tribulation rapturists that say at the seven year mark, once the tribulation is finished. That is uh, when the Lord is coming. There are even those that say that it's after the thousand years, but that's like really confusing. I don't know why you put it anyway. Um, then there are what is sometimes referred to as all millennialists. And the all millennialist um, position is that, I mean, I, look, you know, for those that are here tonight or those that may watch online at some point, I, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but it's essentially to say that the millennium is uh, like figurative. It's symbolic. It's, it's not really a thousand years that we're talking about. You know, that it just symbolizes uh, the reign of Jesus Christ. And they go as far as to say, you know, many of them, in fact, the, the major thrust of our millennialism is that it's going on right now. You know, if, if this is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ... I can't even tell you how disappointed I am, you know. Um, and, and so many things contained in the scripture that talk. Don't be disappointed. Uh, I'm not going to name names, 
but don't be disappointed when you discover that certain teachers that you know and trust and listen to and learn from, uh, not inside Calvary Chapel, but you know, out in other denominations, uh, being a pre-tribulation rapturist is an earmark of being a Calvary Chapel and a Calvary Chapel pastor. And, and if you are not, you will be kindly asked to leave. You know, continue to be a pastor, just change your name. Because you, know, you shouldn't be a Calvary Chapel because people that come to Calvary Chapel are expecting a certain set of teachings, a certain set of distinctives. And, uh, you know, there are awesome teachers that I learn wonderful things from, from the Word of God, you know, ways to live and, and how to apply the Word of God. And then you find out, oh, they're an all-millennialist. <laughs> just like, why? You know, you're not looking forward to the same coming of Christ that the rest of us are? So, you know, then you start to question, like, what kind of teacher, what kind of scholar, why would they? Well, apparently a really good one. You know, if they've been teaching you things all along that you're able to apply to your life and learn from and benefit from, they just happen to have a different view on that one subject. It's, uh, you know, they, they can be wrong. I don't mind. They'll, they'll figure it out when we're in the millennial reign. There is nothing that indicates in any of the occasions, Old Testament, New Testament, that refer to the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. There's nothing to indicate that it is symbolic. You know, how many times have I pointed out during our study through Revelation then when when it is symbolic, the scripture says it was like unto you know, it tells you flat out, you know, it, it was something like this or it was something like that or it reminded me of, you know, it sounded like the voice of many waters like unto you yeah, it lived and reigned for a thousand years. Okay, pretty straightforward explanation. Not, not a lot of room there to move things around. But that doesn't bother people, does it? They just, you know, take one word in Genesis chapter 1 and create millions of years. Put a giant innumerable gap in creation and, you know, insist that this, they ignore everything else and insert something that doesn't have any application within the context. So, you know, here, when we're told a thousand years, I take it, I insist, I believe the scripture is saying it's a literal thousand years. So here, uh, the ones whose souls have perished, uh, you know, the judgment was committed to them when I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Um, a point to take note of in Acts chapter 1 Jesus tells the apostles that they should remain in Jerusalem until they had received explosive power now, that isn't just my interpretation of it, the word dudamis is where we get the term dynamite from they should wait until they had received dudamis, dynamite power from on high to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, the disciples at that point took Jesus' advice and went and hid in the upper room. Think about that. A clear indication that they do not have the explosive power to be witnesses on Jesus' behalf. In fear, they are hiding in the upper room. Then the Holy Spirit falls on them in Acts chapter 2, and they burst out into the street preaching the word of God, and 3,000 people are converted that day, and those people are from all over the Mediterranean region, and they all return home and spread the gospel like wildfire. It is an explosive effect. The explosive power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. That term witness is martyr. To, to be a witness to the point of death. To testify to the degree that it would cost you your life. So, so here when we're reading the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness, 
to Jesus and for the word of God of Jesus and of and for the word of God. They were testifying in the face of public execution. And they paid for their testimony with their lives. Now, if I'm describing that to you and you're sitting there thinking like that is a far cry from where I'm at. I don't hardly dare to talk to my co-workers. You know, there's a company policy in place that says I'll be in big trouble. Well, do you have a desire to testify on behalf of Jesus Christ? If you do, then what's lacking is the power that comes from the Holy Spirit, which is explosive to share with the world, to say what needs to be said, to even sacrifice yourself in the process in order to share. There's something that uh, we are being encouraged towards. Don't, Don't be disheartened, right? The Holy Spirit uh, does not come to us and condemn us. He may convict us, but he doesn't condemn us. may cause you to reconsider where you're at. And then if there's need for change and there's going to be change, then the Holy Spirit will accomplish that. You know, I had a friend who... Uh, in facing the opportunity to go to the mission field, they kept hearing from the Lord that they were supposed to go to the mission field. And they finally confessed to the Lord and then later to us that their fear was God was going to ask them to go someplace where there were either spiders or snakes. You know. Going to ask them to go to the jungle. Going to ask them to go someplace where there were spiders or snakes. And once they came to the realization that that was what was really holding them back, they went to the Lord with that and said, you know, I know I'm supposed to serve you. I know I'm supposed to go to the mission field, but I have this fear of spiders and snakes. And the Lord very gently said to their heart, and they shared shared it with us later, If I'm going to send you to a place where there are spiders and snakes, my Holy Spirit will give you a love for spiders and snakes. Because we know people that are like that, right? That you just, they're weirdos. But anyway, they, you know, they they like those sorts of things. God's not going to call you to a place. God's not going to call you to be a witness and you just don't have it within yourself. He'll empower you. In the time of need, he'll empower you. These here are given the power to allow themselves to be beheaded, to not compromise, not take the mark. If you're sitting here right now going, I don't know what I would do. Well, number one, get ready to leave, right? Because this is the witness relocation program that we're preaching here. Christ is coming for the church, and we, w- we want to go prior to any of this. But if the, the change was to occur to our culture where your life was in threat for being a Christian, Christ will give you the strength in that moment to deal with whatever is coming. There's no need to be overwhelmed or concerned regarding these things. You're going to be able to endure. And in that, there is glory. The thrones, the authority, the thousand-year reign with him. We are given authority in that moment. That's really quite remarkable. You consider what Jesus teaches about he who is faithful in the little things will be granted more. It requires that we be faithful in the here and now. If we're expecting to receive more then, why, why would we be given more authority if we were not faithful in this setting? I know a lot of people who look at ministry opportunities and they say within themselves, well, if I was just given that opportunity, you know, and I always say, well, what are you doing right now? Surely you have opportunities right now. Are you serving and working within those opportunities? 
Because if you are doing that, then Christ is going to give you more. And if you serve and you're obedient within that, then Christ will give you more. Right? This, this is the way it always works. So many people sit back on their laurels and their attitude is just, well, you know, I mean, if God could make me Billy Graham, then maybe I'd, you know, hit the ground running. But right now, it's just measly old me. And, you know, look, look around. It's a band years ago I used to listen to, and uh, one of the lines from a song they wrote called Crawl to China was, uh, is God asking you to crawl to China or just to cross the street? You know, your neighbor, the person who's right there. You already know their language. You already know their culture. Just go over and say hello. You don't even have to start by just preaching the bark off from them. Just introduce yourself and start the discussion and build the friendship and open the door that, you know, something might happen. Greater authority is given to those who have been obedient in the smaller circumstances. But the rest of the dead did not live again, verse 5 says, until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So you come to the end of this seven years and the resurrection occurs and the authority is given those who have you know, lived up to the point of this death, right? Because we have the resurrection that occurs at the coming of Jesus for the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through the end of the chapter, right? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of an archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air with them together to meet the Lord in the air and be together with him, comfort one another with these words. So, you know, the idea of that resurrection now here, this, this resurrection is all part of the first resurrection that is taking place. The authority that is given to those who have suffered at this point. Second resurrection, right? Because here's why. There's going to be death during the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. There's going to be people dying. Not like today. The, the prophets from the Old Testament tell us that those who die at 100 years old during that period of time will uh, be thought to have died in their youth. You know, longevity will be restored in a way that it was previously. So long life, they, people don't often don't realize that the number one thing that's killing us is the sun. It's, we're being bombarded by deadly, mostly x-rays, are just tearing our DNA apart. Uh, if you could live your entire life under 18 inches of concrete or um, a, a, a solid one inch of lead to protect you, just a lead umbrella, one inch thick, so that well, you'd get reflective radiation off the earth. But you get my point. If you could protect yourself <clears throat> from the harmful radiation from the sun, you would almost double your lifespan. You know, if you um, right now or, you know, in general, and this freaks people out when I say this, you know, going to live to around 65 years old, um, you know, everybody's eyebrows. I get to see all of your eyebrows go up when I say that from up here. I'm like, wait a second. That's <clears throat> what the scripture says. If by reason of strength that be extended to 80, right? So, you know, this is the general concept of the lifespan of humanity. You could live to about 120 years uh, just living the way you currently do if you could protect yourself from the harmful radiation from the sun. Uh, you'd have to do that your entire life so that your, your, your DNA, more than anything, wasn't messed up longevity uh, christ is going to restore creation in such a way that uh, a great deal of longevity will be restored to what degree i don't know adam and eve uh, lived to be nearly a thousand years old you know uh, you you look at methuselah 969 years old according to the scripture you know people mock at that idea but you know if you, if you can get past genesis one verse one, um, you know, in the beginning, God, well, there, you know, I mean, the, a lot of the bases are covered at that point. You can believe uh, the rest of the scripture and consider that we, again, we've ha found incredible fossilization. 
that tells us the planet was very, very different. Um, you know, I've always mentioned 50 foot or 15 foot uh, asparagus ferns. Uh, you know, uh, dragonflies with uh, 52 inch wingspans. Um, you know, we found human footprints in the Paluxy Riverbed in uh, the mid 70s. Uh, that uh, from toe to heel was a little more than 19 inches. You know, that's a very large human being. You know, not one, many. You know, that were embedded there with dinosaur footprints, human being footprints. You know, uh, underneath dinosaur footprints. So, dinosaurs stepped on that spot after human beings. So, apparently, it wasn't 65 million years from when the dinosaurs died to when the human beings existed, because the dinosaurs stepped on a human footprint. But anyway, there's a number of things within all of this. The Earth was different, is the point. I've recently uh, had conversations with people about the fact that uh, you know a lot of the dinosaur fossils that we find. Uh, their nostrils are, you know, generally around the size of a horse's nostril. And, uh, you know, massive land creatures, huge, colossal land creatures with little tiny nostrils like that would not have been able to survive on Earth today. They couldn't have sucked in enough oxygen. So the oxygen content of planet Earth had to have been different then Christ is, according to the scripture, going to restore a lot of uh, the fruitfulness of the earth and, you know, the prosperity of crops and things in that nature. So, you know, there will be death occurring, but not at the rate we currently see it here. There is a, another resurrection that will take place. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. You know, the, the resurrection of the, uh, the saints is what takes place there. Not all of the dead are resurrected. Over such, the second death has no power. So we've heard the second death referred to previously and bluntly stated what it is is hell. Um, that when a person is sent to their eternal judgment, separated from God for eternity, that's the second death. Um, you know, the the um, first century church did not refer to Christians as dying. They referred to them as falling asleep because they had the mindset that resurrection was the assurance of their future. They were going to be resurrected. So for now, they're just not with us. They have fallen asleep. Not to be confused with what the Jehovah's Witnesses and some other cults uh, teach about soul sleep. Okay, um, Because the scripture teaches to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief at the cross, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. So you exit the body, you go to be in the presence of the Lord. The body does not live it is the soul lives but the body does not live until the resurrection so here <clears throat> first resurrection occurs the saints are resurrected and they live and reign with christ the unbelievers are not resurrected and death continues to occur during the thousand year reign of jesus christ and then at the end of the thousand years all who have ever lived are resurrected and stand before the great white throne so we'll move through that and get to the end of chapter 21 and see those things there. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who was part of the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So in case you were wondering, he says it twice in the same passage. Well, going to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. You can insert the dramatic music right there. It's just really disappointing that that has to take place. And will go out to deceive the nations. There it is again. His power is deception. Well, how's he going to do that? You know, everybody's already aware of who he is. No, again, 
there are those that have been born during this period of time who have never experienced his influence in any way. And now they're going to experience it. You know, we read these things in just a few sentences. And you're kind of thinking like, wow, how dumb would you have to be? A thousand years is a long time. A lot transpires, right? Uh, Cheryl's grandmother lived to be how old? A hundred? hundred five years old. In her lifetime, she saw uh, the creation of the automobile, the creation of the airplane, telephone, telegraph, television, right? She left off at VHS, right? Yeah, yeah. Seriously, right? She. No, but I'm saying, didn't, didn't she tell you a story where she was like, she, I'm not going to learn anymore. I'm not going to, DVDs, Blu-ray, not, I'm not going. You know, just the technology that she saw in her lifetime. It's amazing. You can say a thousand years is a long time. And, and people are going to go a thousand years and they will have never experienced the deception of Satan. And then that's going to be introduced to their existence. You can see why. Uh, they would succumb to it, that, that in the process, uh, their hearts and minds would be taken by it. Released from prison, he'll go out, deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Hey, listen, the earth, the, the uh, Bible is not stupid and isn't saying the earth is square. By the way. Just some of the critics jump on that, the four corners of the earth. I, uh, I heard a a recruiting advertisement recently that told told us that uh, the Marines were on uh, all four corners of the earth. The, the earth is not flat. The earth is not square. The scripture is not saying that. North, south, east, and west is what's being referred to. It, it's it's a common expression of the day. Just, just in case you run into the critics, the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, Gog and Magog. And so... Uh, were clear, um, were probably most accurately talking when you're looking at Ezekiel and Gog and Magog come down out of the north to attack Israel. And when you're reading here of Gog and Magog, uh, you're probably, and I'm, you know, speculating based upon what the scholars teach, but you're probably looking at the devil himself influencing Russia. Okay. Um, Magog in ancient text is translated location-wise and uh, linguistically. It has two threads that actually confirm Russia for us. So the one thread is that you, when you go from these ancient uh, texts in, in Hebrew through a couple channels, Greek and then into Latin, you get Rush and then Russia, which specifically is speaking of Russia. And you also get uh, Magog uh, goes directly into Moscow as far as translation goes. So could be something else, but my suspicion is it's Russia and Moscow. So, you know, it's just, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the location and the linguistic description seems to be uh, there. Gog, um, interestingly enough, they found a, an ancient translation in this process of, um, so the, the nation of Israel goes into captivity for 70 years and the world's language changes over to Greek. And they come out of their captivity speaking Greek. And, and actually before they come out of captivity, the Jews are asking their rabbis to render a Greek translation of the Old Testament for them. So 70 scholars uh, render what is known as the Septuagint. Uh, the, the word Septuagint means 70 in reference to the number of scholars that worked on it. And in working the Hebrew over to the Greek language, they came across a reference that refers to Gog, the Lord of the Flies. So uh, Jesus referred to Satan as the Lord of Flies, and you'll recall that they, in criticizing Jesus, 
said, sure, he casts out demons, I'm paraphrasing, but sure, he casts out demons, but he does it by the Lord of the flies. So even the Jews referred to the devil as the Lord of the flies. So the devil influencing Russia, Moscow, is, you know, I'm not, you know, strictly anti-Russian or, you know, something like that, but it really does seem to be what the scripture in Ezekiel and then here are uh, referring to is is the fact that uh, we know where this is going to come from. So the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven, uh, came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Because remember, at the end of the uh, seven years, they were already cast into there. Satan was given his temporary dwelling place in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for a thousand years, released back onto the earth. This is what transpires. As a result, now he is cast into that final place where uh, the... uh, the beast and the false prophet already are. Um, cast the lake of fire, brimstone, and the beast and the false prophet are. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So, you know, you can throw away, uh, you know, your emergent church authors of the early millennium, Rob Bell and others who tell you that hell isn't permanent. That, you know, it's temporary. Yes, there's a hell, but, you know, after a period of time, you'll be forever and ever. Not just forever, but forever and ever. It is an absolute permanency. Uh, I just want to encourage you to meditate on death and hell, you know, really do. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You should have a proper reverential respect for judgment and what potentially lies ahead for every human being, right? Because here's the deal. You are eternal. You were created as an eternal being. If you reject God and you are not in his presence for all of eternity, then you have to be excommunicated from his presence for all of eternity. James tells us that all good things come down from God is essentially the summary of it, but every good thing, every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning, meaning that he doesn't give good things sometimes and really terrible things at other times. He gives good things. And if you don't want him, he's not going to make you take him. He is good, and what he provides is goodness. You don't want him, then the only other option is everything that is bad. That's where you're going to spend eternity, separated from God. Surrender now. Obedience now is what your life, my life needs. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Um, Trying to share with uh, an acquaintance a few years ago, who, you know, thought himself a Christian. And uh, as uh, we were having the discussion about his faith, we came to the point where, you know, you look a little further here, verse 21, right? Now, or verse 1 of chapter 21, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And as I'm sharing this with my friend, he's getting more and more angry until he just blows a gasket. And what it comes down to is while he's professing to be a Christian, in his mind, he's bought into, and I'll be blunt, the whole earth worship thing. We've got to save planet earth. Look, as a Christian in this room, you should be one of the greatest conservationists of earth that there is. You should take really, really, really good care. Of earth. You should not be destructive and irresponsible with what your father created. Okay? You should be. You, you shouldn't have a flagrant, dis- well, it's all going to burn anyway, so I'll just, you know, 
destroy, help destroy. No, this this is your father's creation. Think about that, right? Some of us, dad's Father's Day, here we are, right? You've worked on certain things, built certain projects, you know, workbench, table, I don't know what. And you, I got a big table in my house, 10, 10 and a half feet long, a little more than four feet wide. Built it myself. Abigail is sitting at my table last night saying, you know, I've grown up at this table. And it's taught me to be lazy. <laughs> Because I can sit in this chair and put my feet up on this center bar under the table and lay right back and just eat. And she said, now I live in a house that has a little tiny table. And I have to drag another chair over and put my feet up in that chair and lay back. If I walk in the house and she's just taking the skill saw to the table, I'm going to be upset. A lot of effort, a lot of memory, a lot of work involved. So the Lord, our Father, built all of this created all this and we should be good stewards of it and we shouldn't be mocking of taking care of it but there are those that worship the earth and this is what my friend was caught up in and when we got to the point where i'm saying dude it's all going it's going to be destroyed he was so angry so angry and i'm trying to like move him just just turn the page man just turn the new heaven new earth the one who made it is the one who's going to get rid of it because he's going to be giving you a new one and he couldn't handle it. And that's that's because, here's the thing, it's a spiritual problem, and they don't even understand it. They don't recognize it, right? There's an old cliche uh, that we use. It says, for the unbeliever, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. And for us as believers, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to come. So in the process, when we're reading here, that this earth is dying and passing away and being done away with. You shouldn't be disheartened about that at all. Your Heavenly Father who loves you is going to bring and do good things from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was, a, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, meaningless and most meaningful, right? Standing here in this moment, small, small, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. Now, sometimes I include like the references for where these things are at, and I was in the process of putting that all together today and my computer went completely kaflooey and I ended up online technical support. So here's my summary. There are 15 occasions in the scripture that refer to the book of life. And the best that I can come to as an assessment is that the book of life is a record of all the people who have ever lived. And that is why in the scripture, statements are made in the book of Revelation about names being blotted out of the book. Okay, We commonly in Christianity have that represented to us as the book of life is the book of, where when somebody becomes a Christian, God records their name in the book of life. And in fact, it seems to work the other way. That when you are born, or when you are given life, at conception, your name is recorded there in the book of life. And upon rejecting him, then your name is blotted out seems to be the direction we go, which is why the Scripture teaches that children's names are included. Right? Because as soon as conception occurs, the name is recorded upon rejection. Well, they can't really reject until they've come to a place of consciousness about the existence of God and made that willful choice to accept or reject. David tells us of his son who passed away, Right? He will never again come to me, but I will someday go to him. 
So, so we have biblical confirmation that children get a pass, which now consider all of those Old Testament occasions where a nation becomes incredibly wicked and murderous amongst themselves and of their neighbors, and God finally says, okay, we've got to wipe that nation out. And everybody goes, well, the children too? Yeah, because they all just immediately get to go into his presence. They, they get the pass. That's a gracious thing, if you consider that. He takes it into consideration, right? We read the book of Jonah, and Jonah wants them all killed in Nineveh. And God says, hey, I do a lot of paraphrasing. God says, hey, you know, there are more than 180,000 kids in that city that can't tell their right hand from their left hand yet. And you want to kill them all? I want mercy. I want graciousness is what I want. And Jonah's mad. He's angry with that statement. And he even makes the proclamation of, that is why I didn't want to come to you. Because I know you're a gracious, forgiving God, and I hate these people, and I wanted to see them smoked. So, weird. God is kind. Here, you got sets of books, which we're going to be told are the deeds of humanity. Everything you have done, recorded. And then you have the book of life. Paul tells us, right, that as believers, we are judged in a different way. Our judgment is through fire for reward, those things which were done for Christ. So I'll read it, but the summary of the issue is, open the books. Is their name in the book of life? Right, whichever way you want to go, right? Will Cass, okay, let's read the deeds. Oh, sinful, horrible guy, terrible, yep. Yeah confirmation well is he written in the book of life yes he is well then that nullifies what's recorded for the deeds or vice versa right it, it just start with is their name written in the book of life yes it is then don't even read the deeds just move on you know it, it, what's your name you know is your name in the book of life your name's not in the, the book of life well let's see if you're a sinner oh all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god you are so therefore you are condemned so read with me here, they opened the books. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works. Th think about the way this is written and the things Jesus taught us, right? Uh, you know, th there in the confrontation in Matthew, as they're trying to trip him up in his last week before the crucifixion, and Jesus says, tell me, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, David's son. And he says, well, then how is it that David says of the Lord that my Lord, his throne will last forever? How, how does that work? If, if, if it's David's son, he would never refer to him as the Lord in the process of this whole thing. The, the statement he comes up with is, you know, talking to them, he, he's, he's proving the resurrection and says, that Abraham, you know, God is presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meaning they're alive. They're not dead. They are presently the living. They've been dead for a very long time. How, how in the world can it be that God is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Right? It should say God was the God the reason he can say he is is because they're in the presence of the Lord. They are alive. God is the God of the living, is what Jesus said. So when we're reading here, you know, that the dead were judged. It's the idea of those who are of the second death, the eternal death. So the judgment here that we're seeing is for those whose names are written, not written in the book of life, according to their works, by the things which were written in the books, uh, you know, which the books would... So read it again. I'll go back to uh, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the small, the great, standing before God. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Um, and if, you, if you're confused about death and Hades, the place of the dead, and the grave 
is the idea of what's being said there. Uh, you know, the sea is not really a grave, right? So the graveyards, you might say, and the sea, you know, gave up the dead. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, the place of the dead, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. For, for me, it's a pretty straightforward explanation of, of how um, death and, and Hades works. I, I want to take the time right here to jump back with me to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to look at a couple things uh, here uh, regarding uh, death and hell and uh, paradise. Uh, verse 19, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And I'll try to wrap it up uh, for tonight with, with this portion here. Jesus speaking, right? So, um, you know, there's an absolute authority to these things. We, you know, obviously the word of God contains that, but. If you struggle to hang on to the Word of God when when it's red letters, it should be a lot easier for you, you know, as far as embracing it. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus teaches a parable, he almost always starts by telling his listeners that he's teaching them a parable. And then he speaks in very generic terms. He, 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 he rarely you know, speaks of very specific names in very specific circumstances. None of that's here. The way Jesus delivers this leaves all of the scholars who have studied it to believe that Jesus is giving us spiritual insight into a literal situation that took place. This is not symbolic. It is not figurative in any way. So, so follow. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Very well off is the idea. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That's a pleasant thought, that whole state of existence right there. The, the crumbs that fell from the table, um, it was common practice amongst the wealthy, uh, at every amongst the wealthy, not common amongst the common people, but amongst the wealthy, to bake uh, a lot of pita bread, that flat bread, and that was a big part of their meal. And they would uh, bake off extra always. And they would use it throughout their meal as a napkin. So you take one off and you rip it open and you dip and you eat and literally keep yourself clean and wipe your hands off and you would discard bread. And it would be thrown away. They're wealthy. You know, cloth is far more expensive at this time. And, and the thoughts of keeping cloth and laundering cloth. And just, you know, make 12 more pita pockets while you're at it. You know, every, every meal. And they would discard it. The impoverished would go to their homes and pick the trash. Because the, at least all of that bread would be discarded uh, after their meals. So that's what's being described here. And, and that's just to not to just be graphic. That's to show you the great contrast between these two lives. One man has so much that he can just throw bread away without a thought. Another man has so little that that bread is his very existence. So great contrast between here, the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died 
and was buried. No, notice that the difference there. There is an angelic host waiting to receive the beggar, where just a hole in the dirt is what's waiting for the rich man. Being in torment in Hades, this is the place of the dead. So we just read that death and Hades would be cast into the lake of fire. Here he's in torment in Hades. Lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Boy, the, you have to do a lot of speculation to figure out what's going on here as far as painting a specific picture. Generically, it comes down to this, and we'll read a little bit more. Place of torment where those in that place of torment can see those who are in a place of comfort even here referred to as a place of paradise. And we see from the description that there's even water in the place of paradise. Comfort, paradise, and water. Okay. Now, the scholars argue and fight about, is this heaven? Is this you know just the spiritual plane? Is this a physical location? We all kinds of things. Simple as this. Place of torment and fire that can see place of paradise, comfort, and water. Right? Follow. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, hold the phone. He's Jewish. Real deal. So they don't get an automatic pass. Okay? which should stand as a warning for everyone inside Christianity also. There's no automatic pass. That's that old statement, God has no grandkids. Every generation has to surrender themselves to the Lord. Wrap this up as quick as I can. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. You've got to be seriously parched if you're begging for one drop of water. So how, how crazed must you be to just, just one drop of water to cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. There's, there's even compassion in the heart of the people in paradise. There's a desire described by Abraham. We wish, we wish we could come and comfort. We can't. There's no passage between us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them. Thus they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Summary, the word of God. They have the word of God. And they need to learn to trust the word of God. Read and believe the word of God. Let them trust them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And there is a little sinful thing in our hearts that says, nah, I don't know if I believe that. If somebody actually rose from the dead and told me, hey, get right with God, or you could end up in hell, guess what? One rose from the dead, Jesus Christ, and declared that message to the world. And we're reading the book of Revelation that speaks of the eternal judgment. We have the word of God. 
If you reject the word of God, though one rise from the dead. Uh, let me just warn you against listening to any of these people, any of these people that say, I died once, and, uh, you know, this and that. If they don't come to you and preach Jesus Christ, they're probably a liar. Right? Uh, I, I give the speculation that the mind does some amazing things when it's left to its own faculties. If your brain is not being controlled by you, right? I always describe a dream I had years ago where I was sound asleep, and in my dream I was underwater. And I suddenly recognized that there was a bumblebee underwater coming after me and it's swirling around making this crazy sound underwater and i wake up and panic over i'm gonna get stung and it's the guy next door with a skill saw cutting through plywood the sound the sound has entered into my dream and my mind has created something from it okay well these people that are in Surgical rooms and doctors are all a panic and putting them under and now they're falling asleep and their mind does fantastic things with all the stuff around them, right? And they come back and tell people, I went to heaven. My first question is, when did you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? You did not, and yet you went to heaven? You're a liar, right? Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes in the presence of my Father except through me. Through me, Jesus Christ alone. There's a lot of talk. The authority of God's word. Hell is real. There is an eternal judgment. We need to prepare ourselves now. Because someday we're going to breathe our last. And when we enter eternity, we want to be in the place where our name is written in the book of life. And we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my peace, enter into your rest, is what we want to experience. The world is going to face judgment. Next week, we'll see chapter 21 and what it is that the Lord has in store in the great city and all that he has planned in the future. It's a remarkable picture, but I would encourage you, people don't like that they they want a message from christianity that's warm and loving accepting comfortable non-confrontational and uh that's not the entirety of our message it's a very imbalanced message if that's all we're delivering it needs to be the accuracy of god's word the comfort is we can escape that eternal death that second death that the scripture describes so surrender your life to christ amen Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your work, your word, and I pray that you would help us, help us to follow you in obedience, Lord. Pour, pour your Holy Spirit out upon us. Give us the strength that is necessary for us to walk with you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.